Brothers and sisters, could you please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the book of Revelation, as we'll be looking at chapter 2 and verses 1 to 7. Chapter 2 and verses 1 to 7. Revelation chapter 2 and verses 1 to 7. Please then hear with me the reading of the inspired and inerrant Word of God. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Today, brothers and sisters, we begin by looking at these letters that were written then to, to particular and individual churches according to their own uh, present circumstances that they were dealing with. And what we're going to find is that these seven churches, or that the letter, the letters to these seven churches follows a similar pattern. We're really going to see seven, seven things that these letters consist of. First, there's going to be a command to, to write to the angel of the church. Then you're going to see a self-designation of, of Jesus Christ that he gives. You will then see a commendation to the church, right, praising their good works. You will see an accusation being brought up against them. They'll be given a warning, which will be followed by an exhortation. And they will close with a promise. So generally speaking, these seven components you will find in each of the letters, although they are not identical. So, for example, in the church of Laodicea, there is no commendation of their good works. But generally speaking, you're going to find these seven components in each of the seven letters. Now, although each letter was written to a particular church according to their own particular circumstances and struggles that they're dealing with, every other church still needed to hear the letter that was written to the other churches. Right? This is what we see when at the end of the letters it's included. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. What these seven churches experience, the sin that they're guilty of, the struggles that they endure, a line also will find very much with the same sins that we struggle with and the same 
temptations and trials that, that we even as a church today have to endure. And just as they needed to be reprimanded, just as they needed to, to hear these things and be reminded of these things, as they were flirting with sin and in danger of experiencing the judgment of God, we too need to hear these things. Right? We too need to heed the warnings of our Savior, lest we incur judgment with our flirtation of sin as well. And brothers and sisters, what church is there that is in a, a state of perfection that they cannot identify with the things that are written to these churches? There are none, are there? Now, oftentimes, we think that we are healthier than we usually are, don't we? And we, we don't realize this is the case until we see or hear otherwise. I mean, think about just our physical bodies. You have your yearly physical checkup, right? And as you go to see the doctor, you may be feeling great. You may be feeling perfect. And you walk in to, to get your checkup, and all of a sudden, what do you find? You have cancer. Right? You, have, you have some kind of terrible thing going on in your body that you were unaware of. And the doctor alerts you to these things and says, these things you, you have to do, you have to change, or else you will die. Here in these letters, this is what we see. Christ is the great physician alerting the church of its condition, telling them these are the sins of the church, these are the things that must be addressed and changed or else you may die. Now in the opening verse of chapter 2, we read this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now the one who holds the seven stars in his hand and who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands, we learned last week, was our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who appears to John in this vision in overwhelming glory. And it's here that Jesus then reveals to John that the seven uh, stars in his right hand are the seven angels of the seven churches, and that the seven lampstands that he walks in the midst of are the seven churches. So today, what do we read then as we look? That Jesus directs John then to write to, to one of the angels in the church of Ephesus. Write to the angel in Ephesus. Now, I'll admit to you right away, that this is a, a, a passage here that, that can... Uh, be difficult to understand, one that we have to wrestle with, and I'll explain to you why. You really have to come down on two sides. Is the angel a heavenly being, or is the angel an earthly being? Right, we, have to, we have to determine that. Now, there are good men on both sides who will, who will say heavenly being, and there are others who will say earthly being. Uh, those who are on the side of a heavenly being will say this. I would say their strongest argument is this that the word here for angel is used 77 times in the book of Revelation. And of the 77, 69 of them are talking about heavenly beings. The eight that aren't are in chapters 2 and 3. Okay? So that would be their strongest argument for, for why they would say these must be heavenly angels that Jesus is telling John to write to. And this is plausible. It's plausible that there is some sort of uh, you know, an angel who is a corporate representative of the church, perhaps 
a, a kind of guardian angel, we might say, over the church. Um, we see this in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, Michael, the archangel, is the, is the guardian angel of the nation of Israel. And so, uh, it's not beyond the, the scope of what it could mean. But what we also have to understand, though, is that the word angel can also just mean messenger. It can just mean messenger. In fact, in Mark chapter 1, verse 2, this is what John the Baptist is called. He's called an angel. He's called a messenger who is to make straight the path of the Lord. And, and what's the role or the task of the messenger? It was to herald the word, the word of God. It was to declare God's Word to the people. And so then... The people who land on the side of, of earthly individuals, what they would say is that Jesus is telling John to write a letter to the pastors of these churches. And it was the pastors then who would stand up in front of the congregation and declare this word uh, to the people. This is, although I wrestled, although I struggled, this is where I would, would land myself. And one of the reasons why I would land uh, in, in this view is because what we have to understand is that when Jesus tells John to write to the angel, the angel of the church not only is commended with the church, but he's rebuked for the sin of the church as well. And so you have to think, can, a, can an angel be guilty of sin and still be a guardian angel? I, don't think, I think he'd be a fallen angel, right? He wouldn't be a guardian angel. And so I think within the context of, this, of these letters, I think it's best to interpret it as writing to... Uh, the pastors of the churches to, to declare amongst the people, the pastor himself who is being commended with the church, but also being rebuked with the church. But irregardless of which, of which view or which position you take, what we need to see is that something truly remarkable and incredible is being said here. Right? That it is Jesus who holds the seven stars or who holds his ministers in his hand, right? Empowering them and protecting them and guiding them. But it is also Jesus Christ who is walking in the midst of the church, doing the same thing for his church. Right? He's doing the same thing for his church. For what is described to us here in our text reveals something to us about Christ. And what it reveals to us is that Christ is ever present with his church. Christ is ever present with His church. Today, brothers and sisters, as the Word of God goes forth, as we sing our hymns, as we offer prayer and praise unto God, Christ is amongst His people. Right? What Jesus is saying to the churches is, I am here with you. I look down upon you. I see you. And I know what you do every Lord's Day. I see your worship. I know your weaknesses and your strengths of every individual here. I know every one of your hearts and your souls and your minds. I'm the one who dispenses unto you all the good gifts that this church needs. Which ought to comfort us, shouldn't it? But at the same time, brothers and sisters, it ought to frighten us. Because what Jesus is also saying is I'm in the midst of this church and I see those of you who are here who wish to be somewhere else. I know those of you who are here who have lived in immorality during the week have come unrepentant of your sin and who now proclaim My name with your lips. That ought to frighten us as well to know that He is in the midst of His church and He sees everything 
Jesus is not an absentee Lord. Jesus is the King of the church who reigns over us presently today. He sees everything that goes on. There is no escaping the eye of the all-encompassing Lord. And this is what the church in Ephesus finds out today. This is what they learn today. And so, with this groundwork being laid, we want to look at verses 2 to 7 for the remainder of our time and see what is it that the Lord has to say to the church in Ephesus and then ask, how do we apply this to ourselves as well? And so we're going to do this in three points this morning. And the three points are this. First point is commendation. There are going to be three C's. Number two is chastisement. Chastisement. And the third is going to be comfort. Comfort. So first, commendation. Look with me, please, and starting at verse 2. Here's what we read. Chapter 2, verse 2. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found to be false. Then in verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. Drop down to verse 6. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so first thing we see is that Jesus reveals to them that He knows their works. Right? Nothing that Jesus has done has been missed. And so what does He do? He, con- he commends them for their intolerance of sin. He commends them for their intolerance of wickedness. Of those who have entered the church and have claimed to be apostles, but whom they have tested and have have been shown to be false. Now, brothers and sisters, we must understand that Ephesus was the greatest city in Asia Minor. Ephesus had a population of about a quarter million people, and Ephesus was home to one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world, which was the temple to the goddess Artemis. And in this temple, there were 127 pillars, 36 of them overlaid with gold and jewels, which was the main attraction of the city. Right? Ephesus, likewise, was kind of the center of, of trade and travel as well. But because of all these things, Ephesus was also wrought with idolatry and sexual immorality as well as people came and went through the city. And as people came and went through the city, what you would also find is itinerant ministers, itinerant preachers, right, traveling ministers, who would come through Ephesus and would and would go to these churches and, and they would claim for themselves apostleship to the to the saints in the churches. But what Jesus commends the church in Ephesus for is having none of it. Right? They were having none of it. Why? Because they were sound in truth and in doctrine. And so they were able to expose false teachers. And not only did they expose them, but then they they drove them out from their midst, wanting to keep Christ's church pure. But what we need to see is that their concern extended beyond just doctrinal purity 
And it extended even to shameful practices as well. We're told that the church in Ephesus hated the works of the Nicolaitans, just as Christ hates the works of the Nicolaitans. Now you're asking, well, who are these Nicolaitans? The question is, there's not much to be said about who they are. A lot is just mere conjecture. Uh, They are referenced in the next letter to the church in Pergamum. In verse 14, Jesus says this, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed by idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so there are some who believe that the Nicolaitans were those uh, who were a part of uh, sexual immorality and idolatry. And so what you have then in the church of Pergamum is those who are attending pagan feasts where this sexual immorality in this idolatry occurred. Right? They gave in to the temptation of the Nicolaitans. And the Nic- Nicolaitans would have been then kind of, kind of, we could think of them as like antinomians. Right? They, they were those who said, well, I confess Christ, so I'm a Christian. But they deny the law and they think that they can live in gross immorality like the pagan culture around them and be okay. But what we need to see is what Pergamum was guilty of, Ephesus was not. Right? They despised and they hated the works of the Nicolaitans. Right? They did not give in to temptation, but they were vigilant to maintain holiness, not only of doctrine, but holiness of life, holiness of practice. Brothers and sisters, many churches today, I think, are more concerned with being politically correct are being liked by broader society than maintaining doctrinal purity and holiness of practice, are they not? The church in Ephesus endured patiently under trials and tribulations for the sake of Christ. Today, there are too many who are willing to give up truth, to sacrifice truth, to compromise truth, not for the sake of Christ, not for His glory and for His honor, but rather for their own glory, for their own sake and for their own honor. Right? God's Word, which was once seen as a pillar of truth in the church, is now seen by many as an embarrassment. And so they want to twist and pervert the Scriptures to tickle the ears of sinners, to make them feel as if they can be accepted by God no matter who they are or what they do. That God loves them and accepts them no matter what their sin is. Many churches today have abandoned faithful preaching They've abandoned the right administration of the sacraments. They've abandoned church discipline, which are all marks of a true church. And in doing so, what we need to see is they have become synagogues of Satan. But what should we expect when you abandon the truth of God's Word? Right. This is what our Lord says in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you. You see, brothers and sisters, in those churches where there is no no, uh, knowledge of truth, where there is no love for the pure doctrine of Christ, where there is no faithful instruction to God's Word, we need to see that neither in those churches is there Christ. And so what he is saying to to the church in Ephesus, ought to teach us that we here at Covenant Baptist Church must be diligent in preaching God's Word. 
that we must not be looking for acceptance by others, but simply our job is to be faithful to Christ. And that means guarding the truth from error and exposing those who would wish to introduce it. Jesus' commendation also teaches us that we must be willing to suffer for Christ's sake. We must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ. For, brothers and sisters, we are not greater than our Master. And if our Master suffered, we must likewise look to suffer without trying to escape it. Know this, anyone who tries to escape the truth of God's Word so that they might not have to endure persecution, have no place with Christ in heaven. And Jesus is clear on this. You deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. Lastly then, brothers and sisters, we are taught by what our Lord says to the church in Ephesus to have a mind like Christ. And Christ was intolerant to sin. I know this isn't a shock to any one of you here, but maybe someone listening at some time in the future, it might be a shock to you. Christ was intolerant. Christ hated sin. And as His church was to reflect His glory here on earth, we are to love what Christ loves and we are to hate what Christ hates. Now let me qualify though what I mean by that. What I don't mean is that we hate individuals But with a holy hatred, we hate the sin that destroys their souls and the sin which offends our holy God. That is what we hate. And so sound doctrine, hatred of evil, holy living, endurance in the face of trial, this is what the church in Ephesus is commended for. But brothers and sisters, they were not a perfect church. All was not well. They were guilty of sin as well. And this takes us to our second point then, which is chastisement. Please look with me at verses 4 and 5. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The Lord chastises His church here. And in doing so, He brings an extremely troubling and serious charge against this church, doesn't He? As He says to them that they have abandoned the love they had at first. Now you might say to yourselves, how can a church that was just commended by Christ for sticking to the truth and exposing falsehood and and not... uh, being a part of wickedness and enduring for Christ's sake, how can this church lack love? Well, brothers and sisters, I think it's actually quite easy. We just think about our own circumstances. right? How often do things just become a habit for us? They just become a duty. They just become an obligation so that love of God, love of Christ, love of one another is not the motivation that causes us to do anything anymore. I think this is what Jesus is accusing them of. They're just doing things out of duty. Now what we need to see though is that the charge against them is so great 
because of who it is that brings the charge against them. This is Jesus, the lover of their souls. This is Jesus who was sent forth to die for their sin. And it's Jesus who now looks upon His church and He says to them, Where has your love gone for me? Where has your love gone for me? As we sit here today, brothers and sisters, I ask you, over the years, has your love for Christ grown or diminished? Has your energy for the things of God faded? You used to be a person who always spoke to others about Christ. Christ was always on your lips. And now you barely say His name. Have you allowed the things of the world to steal your heart from Christ? Your job, the lives of your children, the pleasures of this world, have you allowed them to steal your hearts from Christ? Over time, has your daily reading decreased? Has your prayer life decreased? Has your joy and delight in coming here to church on Sunday and fellowshipping with your saints dissipated? And now you just come and can't wait to go home to do the things that you truly love. I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, that the fading love of Christ our fading love for Christ doesn't happen like this. It doesn't happen spontaneously. It doesn't happen instantaneously. But rather, your love fades for Christ slowly over time because you stop doing the things that you first did when your love for Him burned vigorously in your hearts. Right, think of it like this. Many of us maybe have a have a fire pit in our backyards or have been to a bonfire. If you want to start up that fire pit, what must you do? Right, you line up all the, all the logs. Right, you, you, you light it. You find something to ignite it with. And what happens initially, as soon as you light it, boom, the flames are high. Right, and they're, they're burning rapidly. They're burning big. And they're burning large. And they're burning furiously. But what happens as you sit there around the fire? The logs begin to turn to ash and the fire begins to fade and dwindle, does it not? And so what must you do out there as you are watching over the fire? You have to care for it. You have to tend for the fire. You have to continue to place logs in the fire so that the flames will continue to burn bright, do we not? And what happens as soon as you walk into the home and you start caring about other things and you stop caring about the fire, what happens? burns slowly away until it dwindles and it dies. Brothers and sisters, this is exactly how it is with the Christian life. This is exactly how it is with the Christian life. Like the fire, we need to watch over our souls daily. We need to tend to our souls daily. We need to be bringing them to the foot of the cross daily. We need to be reminding ourselves of who our first love is. We need to be active in our relationship with Christ, which means attending corporate worship. It means private worship in our homes. It means prayer 
For if you do not tend to your souls daily, what is going to happen is like the fire, the flames of your heart, for Christ will slowly over time dwindle and die. And if you're married, you understand this analogy as well. It takes the same thing in a marriage, doesn't it? If you stop tending to the marriage, if you stop tending and doing those things that brought you together, that you love about one another, that brings you close together, and you start living separate lives and doing separate things, what happens? Over time, your love for one another is dwindling and waning and fading away. Brothers and sisters, as the church, we need to remember who our husband is, don't we not? We need to remember who our husband is and not give our love to any other. It was Samuel Rutherford who said this, that whatever you love besides Jesus, your husband, that one is an idolatrous lover. And so I implore you here today, as believers, I implore us all here today as a church to return to your husband. Return to your husband. And you ask me, well, Pastor, how can that be done? Well, the good news, Jesus gives us the direction here to the church in Ephesus. He, he tells them three things to do to return to the love they once had. And those three things are this. Remember where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. And we'll just touch on each one of these briefly. So first, remember from where you have fallen. What he's saying, remember your conversion. Remember when you first trusted in Christ. Remember that the pinnacle, the zeal you had from at that time where everything you thought, said, and did was with Christ in mind. Right? Remember those times. Think back to all the grace you've seen in your life. Think back to all the prayers I've answered. Think back to how I strengthened you in all of your times of need. This should bring to you the remembrance of the first love you had and not to cause every single one of us to want to get back there again. Secondly, then, Jesus says, repent. Do we see that repentance follows remembering? Here's the problem with Christians today. They don't think. They don't take enough time to think. And so they don't, their heart doesn't feel their own sin and misery because they don't spend time thinking. They don't spend time remembering. And so they don't see the need to repent. What we need to do is study David. We need to study Psalm 51. What does David say after being confronted by the prophet Nathan for his adultery with Bathsheba? In verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David was made to think. David was made to reflect and remember. And it brought back to his mind how, how, how far he has fallen from grace, right? Through his sin, through his adultery. How far he has fallen from his, his love for his Savior and giving in to, to sin and temptation and adultery. And so then what does David do? He cries out in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my transgressions. What is David doing here? He cries out in repentance for forgiveness. 
This is exactly what the Lord is then calling upon the saints in Ephesus to do. Remember your sin. Cry out in repentance over your loss of love for your Savior. And then return to me. Return to me in faith and in obedience. This is what every single one of us here is being called to do as well. For our own lack of love for Christ. To cry out to Him. To cast ourselves before His feet. And to ask the Lord for forgiveness for our sin. For the shameful sin of ever allowing our love to wax and grow cold for our Savior even but for one second. And then lastly, we are to do the works we first did. Return to faithful Bible reading. Return to faithful prayer life. Return to attending to the means of grace. Return to attending whenever the church doors are open because it's for your benefit, for your blessing. Return to holy living. Return to holy speaking. Return to loving Christ within the depths of your soul. This is what Christ is calling the church in Ephesus back to. And then He tells them in verse 5, that if they refuse, He will remove their, laps, their lampstand. What we need to see here is that Jesus' threatenings are used by Christ to arouse us to do the things that He has called us to do. Because we know that for the true believer, there is no losing your salvation. Right? And so He is using this threatening so that for all of those who are true saints in the church in Ephesus, that they would remember, repent, and go back to doing the works that they first did. Brothers and sisters, we know by experience our love grows and shrinks, increases and diminishes. But here is great news for sinners like us, and that is that Christ's love never diminishes for His people. He will never lose His love for those who are truly His. And this leads us then to our third and our final point this morning, which is comfort. Comfort. Please look with me at verse 7. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Here again, pointed out this earlier in the introduction. We pointed out this in numerous weeks. You know, just an example here that all believers are being addressed in the book here. All believers, all true believers have been given ears to hear. And he's calling all those who have ears to hear to hear what he says to the seven churches. But Christ is also the one who has given us the grace to repent. He is the one who has shown us our own hearts. He is the one who has enabled us to love Him because He first loved us. And so, what Christ is saying to His church is, He will not allow us to lose. He will not allow us to suffer defeat. And so Jesus, then here in verse 7, closes out this address to the church in Ephesus, reminding them that the one who conquers, He will grant to him to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God forever. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 Paul says, He that is God, disarm the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. That is Christ. What we need to see is that Jesus can promise this to the church because the battle is already won. 
Right? Jesus is already the great conqueror over sin and the devil and death. And we now, through faith in Christ, share in His victory and have become conquerors with Christ. And so now He's saying to you and I, as He said to the church in Ephesus, if you preserve to the end, I will grant you to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God with Me forever. Now, where do we recall the discussion about the tree of life? Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Remember there, uh, the Lord gives these two symbolic trees to to Adam and Eve. uh, The tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And He tells them you're not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but Adam and Eve sin and they eat of it. So they're driven out from the garden. A cherubim is placed there and a flaming sword that that, that, that moves all about to, to guard the tree of life is then placed there. And what did that tree of life then symbolize? It symbolized their eternal life. It symbolized what would have been Adam's reward had he obeyed the law of God. It would have been eating of the tree of life, that which it symbolized, right? Eternal life with God. Right? That tree put forth, it showed us what the Lord wanted to crown Adam's obedience with, right? Which was consummated face to face fellowship with God forever. We need to understand that if we're going to understand here what Jesus is saying. The tree of life symbolized eternal life and it symbolized consummated fellowship between God and man forever. And that is what man lost. right? These are those things man lost when he sinned. This is what God then prohibited man from ever gaining again through his own efforts by putting the cherubim and the flaming sword there. But now what has occurred? God now gives us access in Christ to the tree of life. God, He gives us access to Christ who Himself is the tree of life. Jesus is the tree of life. John chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus is the life. Throughout John's Gospel, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the one who bestows life to the saints. And so what Christ is saying is that I am the tree of life in the paradise of God who promises to you the blessedness of eternal life with me in the new heavens and the new earth. And so what we need to see is that Jesus ends this letter not only with comforting and encouraging the saints, but giving them motivation to persevere until the end. Seeing that God has promised them to dwell with Christ in consummated fellowship forever. In Revelation 21, verse 7, we read this, The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Brothers and sisters, if you have trusted in Christ today, if you have set aside all vain glories and all self-righteousness, and you have the righteousness which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, then you have God as your God. And you are His son and daughter. This was the hope of the church in Ephesus. That although they suffered, although they toiled, although they struggled, that nothing could separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That they were already conquerors. And that through what Christ did, they would one day have that consummated fellowship 
with Christ for all of eternity. And there are many of you here today who are struggling with things. Everyone here is battling sin in our lives daily. We ought to be daily, right? Killing sin in our members. But we need to remember that to the one who overcomes, Jesus promises to you and I that we will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God forever. And so I ask you, is that not your heart's desire? Is it your heart's desire today to have consummated fellowship with the risen Savior and to see Him face to face as He is? As we draw to a close, knowing that Christ walks amongst the lampstands, knowing that Christ walks amongst His churches, I ask you, as you leave here today, to think about, as He walks amongst this church, what would He say about every one of you here? What would He say about Covenant Baptist Church as a whole? Would He say that we love doctrinal purity? Would He say that we have a holy hatred of sin here? Would He say that we are a people who endure patiently no matter what the cost? Would Christ look at your heart and would Christ say, you have loved me more this week than you loved me last week? And will He be able to say next week that your love for me has grown even more than how you loved me the week before? Or will He look at you? Will He look at you and say, where has your love for me gone? Is that what Christ would say to you? Where has your love for me gone? Brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, the only assessment that matters is Christ's assessment of you. And Christ desires that His church love Him and love one another and that we do those works of love amongst each other for our good and ultimately for the glory of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this needful word today. We confess our sin before You this morning that we have not loved You as we ought. That oftentimes our love is not ever increasing, but rather it's ever diminishing. We ask, Lord, that you would forgive us of this sin. That you would give to us uh, hearts that would continue to increase in love for you. That you would, Father, give us hearts that desire to commune with you and fellowship with you each and every day as we look forward to that eternal glory that awaits where we will Spend all of eternity with Christ. Cause us, Father, to long for that day, to look forward to that day. But while we await that day, to set and to seek those things that are in heaven, right? To find for ourselves those treasures that are in, that are in heaven and not on earth. Uh, and yet, Father, we are weak, we are feeble, we are sinners, and we need your help. We need, we need your aid. And so we ask, Father, by the power of the Spirit that you would Grant these requests of your people. And we ask this all in Christ's name we pray. Amen.